0: Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations, the power the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together, we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today we're here with Jackson, Jackson, how are you today?
1: Hi, Deb. How are you doing? It's really nice to be back on the call with you.
0: Well, thank you. Just so everyone knows, Jackson is a historian and a political theorist with a growing reputation, a very good reputation. He specializes in the history and concepts of power and authority. I'm sure most of you have seen his podcast, History with Jackson. You want to tell us more about what you do, Jackson?
1: Yeah, of course. You do flatter me, Deb. You do flatter me. Um, Yes, I do. <laughs> well, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, yeah, so History of Jackson is I, I have weekly YouTube videos and podcasts, which fortunately are on a hiatus at the moment because of work, where I focus on different parts of history. So at the moment, I'm doing a series on the English and British monarch series, and I'm in the middle of a Tudor mini series in that. And I'm, I know you do enjoy that one, Deb. And I also have a podcast where I interview historians from across the world on their specialisms and recent research. So I'm bringing. Recent up to date research from historians and bring it to you guys so you can keep up to date with all the latest historical research.
0: Well, let's talk about that some. Uh, first, since I'm southern and never pronounce anything correctly, how do we say your last name?
1: Well, I, I, I thank you for asking me about that. Not a lot of people do. So it's uh, Jackson van Uden. Um, so the of or the van is more of an of, uh, it's a Dutch name. So I'm, I'm really I'm really proud of my surname. I actually quite like it, and it's it makes me a little bit distinctive. So, yeah,
0: it does, I, uh, doesn't like it? It's like they say, you've got to have a gimmick. So, yeah, it looks p- nice on
1: the on the front page of things.
0: Well, I know you love the concepts of power and authority. So, do you want to talk about Henry VIII today?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think um, Henry VIII is an interesting person. He's one of the first people in history that I really got interested in, uh, and it's a uh, an interest that I've I've dropped in and out of, but I'm always happy to look at Henry VIII.
0: And that is something I wanted to ask you: What made you so interested in history? I don't,
1: I don't really know. I never really have an answer to this when anyone asks me, and it's a fantastic question. But I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of drawn to it. Uh, and I'm sure most of us have that same feeling. But I, I enjoy history. I enjoy learning, and I enjoy getting to know more information. And I feel that, you know, history is one of those things where I can just keep learning. But unfortunately, the more that I learn, and the more I know, the more I know that I don't know, and I just want to carry on learning more and more. So it's that kind of endless pursuit of knowledge for me. Uh, and the third reason is my family. You know, whenever we went anywhere, usually a castle or somewhere, um, my parents, instead of getting me a toy, would well, you know, they'd say no to getting a toy, but they'd say yes to getting a book. So I thought I was pulling a fast one, but in actuality, I was I was getting played. <laughs> and, <laughs> And learning more. So hence why I have so many books.
0: <laughs> that's wonderful. I mean, what a great way to get played. And what a great way to introduce you to history.
1: Yeah, it's it's a kind of a nearly a lifelong passion. And I've still got my first history books, those horrible histories that so many of us over here in the UK love. So yeah, that's kind of what got me into reading it.
0: That's great. Whatever it takes. Well, let's get back to Henry VIII. Does he intrigue you at all?
1: Yes, yeah, he he he, he really does. Um, so as I said, he was one of my first historical interests, uh, and as a boy, I was really interested in, in in him and you know why he executed people. And oddly enough, as a child, which is kind of weird, I was interested in the dissolutions and monasteries. You know, as a person who's grown up in Peterborough, I'm somewhat I've been somewhat subjected uh, to a few le- history lessons on Catherine of Aragon, and there's the annual annual Catherine of Aragon festival here in Peterborough. So I've kind of picked up on Henry VIII. And I've, as a local history, it's kind of been something which I've learned a lot about since I was very young. So he's always been there uh, in terms of my historical interest, despite me becoming a more modernist.
0: Well, with your interest in the concepts of power and authority, And I know you're also intrigued by the theory of totalitarianism. Do you believe Henry was a tyrant?
1: Yes, uh, I do kind of believe he was a tyrant. You know, tyranny is acting arbitrarily, uh, you know, above the law. And Henry VIII really demonstrated that throughout his reign. Uh, There was, you know, an idea that was prevalent throughout his reign, throughout his, his use of power that demonstrated that he thought he was above the law. And that kind—that's kind of what makes a tyrant.
0: So, at what point in his reign do you believe he started with the tyranny gig?
1: I, th- I think being a tyrant is something that's always there. It's some people believe it to be a a personality type, and I've certainly subscribed to that idea that it is a, a, a personality trait. And I think Henry was always had it in him to become a tyrant. And I I agree with Susanna Lipscomb that there was elements of tyranny before this big 1536 injury that Henry suffered. Um, He was acting as a tyrant beforehand. It just ramped up towards and after his injury in 1536. A couple of examples of this before his injury were the 1531 Beggars Act, where he persecuted beggars, the 1533 Buggery Act, where he tried to use this act to publicly persecute monks uh, in an attempt to try and make the church look morally corrupt. And then you know, it, we have an example again after his injury uh, with the 1542 witchcraft laws where he attempted to persecute nuns and, and women.
0: So those are all very valid points. And um, I tend to agree with you and Professor Lipscomb on that, that that seed is always there. It's just when will it sprout?
1: Yeah, I've seen I've certainly seen this in a lot of my research where we look at certain leaders, totalitarians and dictators, and they're kind of seen as these public figures, the people love them. But behind the scenes, they're starting to erode certain freedoms that the people have. And we can see that sometimes with Henry, certainly with these acts as well.
0: I've read this week that Henry had more power than any other English monarch. And because of him, that's why your country has its parliamentary laws. Do you believe that to be true?
1: Oh, well, our history of um, the parliament is a very long and storied one. We certainly see the the creation of a parliament uh, a lot earlier with Simon de Montfort. Uh, We certainly see a more modern concept of parliament with the advent of Oliver Cromwell after the execution of Charles I. So... As someone who's not a parliamentary historian, I couldn't possibly comment, but I think Henry does definitely have some influence in the way that we have a parliament, some influence in the way that our our country is kind of positioned and structured. Um, certainly with that break from Rome, we, we have the establishment, which is both the church and the government and the crown all come into one. So I definitely agree with the point that Henry is possibly the the apogee of British monarchical power.
0: Very good point. Of all the things Henry did, what do you find to be the most appalling by contemporary standards?
1: I do always tell my students, you know, let's not judge the past by the values of today. But it's something that we inherently do. Uh, We inherently look at people from the past and go, oh, he's a monster. And we don't look at the, the situation within that time. But looking back... With contemporary standards, I think this is an interesting question. I f- I certainly find Henry's treatment of people uh, certainly to be very tyrannical, uh, and it's maybe because I have a soft spot for her because I'm from Peterborough. But his treatment towards people such as Catherine of Aragon, I certainly see to be just appalling. You know, his long-term wife, he treated her very well whilst they were married, and suddenly. You know, he, he wants to divorce her, and that divorce goes through. He treats her materially quite well. She is she's given a a pension. She's allowed to live in Kimbolton, which is a very nice place, very nice house. But personally, she's treated horrible. You know, all these material goods they mean nothing if you're not allowed to see your daughter. And I personally think that that's a that's a horrible way for Catherine to spend the rest of her life without being able to see this daughter that she was so close to. And after her death in 1536, Henry and Anne Boleyn wear yellow within this mourning period, which I fear I there's certain theories towards this. One, that it was a calculated insulting move by Anne Boleyn, which if it was, I think possibly by contemporary standards, that's an appalling move. And if they were following the Spanish morning tradition of wearing yellow. I think that's a nice move, but we don't know either way. But I definitely find his his treatment of, of Catherine to be appalling by today's standards.
0: Absolutely. During his lifetime, how was his role accepted?
1: Well, I think there's there were different views of how he was accepted. Uh, there was certainly a view that you didn't want to cross him. And there was certainly a view that he was he was standing by what was best for England. Something that I definitely look at is the reactions to him, him and Anne wearing this yellow. Um, where some members of the court took part in this joyful court ceremony whilst they were wearing yellow, but many ambassadors and nobles who had looked upon Catherine of Aragon as this model of queenship, they found it to be insulting. You know, to be partaking in a joyful ceremony very shortly after the queen's death. However, you know, some historians believe Henry. Henry wept upon hearing the news of Catherine's death, but you know there's definitely contrasting views of how people viewed Henry. Some of the nobility would have loved him until they crossed him, uh, and some of the nobility would have been absolutely terrified of him and would have dared say a word.
0: Very good points, and of course he probably com- controlled most of the documentation, didn't he?
1: Yes, certainly. It's a it's a view where if you control. The narrative, you can control how you're perceived. Um, I can't remember who said but history is written by the victors Uh, and Henry certainly with Cromwell, Cramner, and Worsley definitely controlled the narrative within England. I think we certainly to extent see this in the way that within this country, maybe abroad, the way we see Anne Boleyn. A lot of people believe Anne Boleyn had this sick finger, that she was horrible, that she had an affair, uh, she was a witch, and you know these are we've we've done it. We've had research where we've looked at these points, and we can't always say that these were true. And yet, the way that Henry controlled the narrative to this day, his narrative is perpetuated in in twenty twenty two.
0: So, what do you find as common traits between? Henry and other tyrants from the past that correspond with the 20th and 21st century tyrants.
1: I I, I love this question, Deb. It's a fantastic question. Uh, I think acting arbitrarily without regard to the rule of law is the clearest example for me. Uh, Henry condemned roughly about 60 people without a fair and proper trial, and many of these 60 people were executed. And we see a lot of parallels. Here between Henry's actions and the actions of the great despots of the 20th century, Stalin and Hitler, who, who regularly and routinely use secret police to execute people without a fair trial. And you know, we have Kim Jong Kim Jong-un in North Korea doing that today, who frequently flounce the laws that he has written and execute people without a fair trial. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest, biggest features. Of a despot of a tyrant that they have no true regard for their rule of law
0: if you're a fan of tudor history come join us at all things tudor a facebook group dedicated to well all things tudor members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about tudor history you can also listen to the all things tudor podcast There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. So, Jackson, you spoke about some different things Henry did in the 1530s. Is there one or two things he did that are so horrific that besides his treatment of Catherine of Aragon that you you find they just blow your mind?
1: Yeah, there's there's two things, actually. Uh, firstly, I know she's not one of the most popular queens, but it's the, the execution of Anne Boleyn. I think that follows a clear tyrannical path. You know, he's him and his advisers trying to bring up a list of charges levied levy against her, so that she could be charged with with high treason, using informants. You know, bringing up, trumping up charges against her definitely is not following the proper procedures of charging someone with a crime. And again, he acted ultra virus by ordering her execution and the execution of Lord Rochford and Henry Norris. You know, all of them. Executed without a fair and proper trial. Once again, that's that's touching on those points that I mentioned earlier with not properly following the rule of law. And he certainly did that in this case. And then my second point that I thought was clearly tyrannical was his treatment of Catholics in the aftermath of the dissolution of monasteries. I think the way he handled this was certainly tyrannical. He, whilst he provided the majority of monks, abbots and nuns, pensions, he executed those who didn't agree with him. That's, that's not a fair and just ruler. This resulted in the Pilgrimage of Grace, which I'm sure lots of Tudor historians love, which was a popular revolt from people in the north who had tried to remain Catholic in the aftermath of Henry breaking from Rome, and they were afraid to lose their way of life in the north. The north has always been this rebellious area of England, And they wanted to try and remain Catholic. With this revolt, a pardon was issued to those people who had come. Promises were made to the rebels. And in following precedent from previous tyrannical kings of England, such as Richard II, he retracted that promise. He retracted that pardon. And he executed leading nobles without fair and proper trial. Uh, And some with very harsh methods. Some were hanged. Some were hanged with chains, some were hung, drawn, and quartered. And even one rebel's wife was burnt at the stake. This these aren't actions of a a fair king. These aren't actions of a king you would describe as not being tyrannical. You know, he's he's clearly showing parallels with kings of the past, such as Richard II, who aren't listening to their people. And I I always find it ironic, you know, we have a king in the past who has gone against his people, who has gone against his barons and has been described as a tyrant by contemporary sources who was usurped. He was removed from power by Henry IV, Henry Bolingbroke. And yet we have a king here in the 16th century who is doing very similar things and he's not being usurped. And we hold him up today as being one, one of the great monarchs of English history.
0: He's probably the most, shall we say, noticeable of all your monarchs. I, I think even children know when they see a picture that it's Henry VIII or that it's a king of England.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's certainly this this image where we go, oh, that's a king. That's that's what a king of England looks like. And his his arm is in the Leeds Royal Armoury. Um, he's just some of, he's just one of these people who we love to love and we love to hate over here. Uh, but he had such an influence on on England and the way England is today that it, it's it's kind of hard to look at English history and not and not see Henry's influence.
0: That's so true. And of course, his daughter Elizabeth really brought us into the modern age.
1: Yeah we kind of have we have Henry at this this cross section. Really, towards the end of medieval England and the beginning of the rena- of the Renaissance, and with with Elizabeth, we're firmly in this Renaissance. She's this landmark between the past and the New England, and I think she's a really great point of of interest for English history, where we see internationalism start to begin a little bit clearer. We have the Renaissance in full flow, and she also represents the end of something. She's kind of this intangible quality of English monarchy where you can't help but admire and you know she's kind of the end of something.
0: That's so true. And her influence even stretched over here. I guess everyone knows Virginia was named after her. So she even had a foothold in American history, U.S. American.
1: Yes, in our our short brief involvement in the Americas, she is certainly one of the standout positive points. Uh, I don't (laughs) think we can say that with a lot of monarchs and our relationship with America.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're best friends, so that counts for something. Well, let's talk about what you do. You have History with Jackson and you're doing your Monarch series. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yes, I do have History of Jackson. Uh, History of Jackson is a platform where i have my podcast i have my weekly youtube videos i write i i take part in other podcasts such as this one It it's kind of my baby really
0: well it's a great baby <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i really enjoy um i really enjoy doing it as i mentioned earlier you know i get to speak to to so many historians across the world i get to read new pieces of information which as I mentioned, with my insatiable lust for new information and learning, it really helps satisfy it. Uh, and I get a I get to. I get to play around the weekend. Film, film videos. Film podcasts. And it's just a. It's a really nice thing to do, and I just enjoy it so much.
0: And you're also doing courses, I believe. Is that true? Uh,
1: so yeah, I recently just published um, my lessons and lesson plans from. A, a mini schema of learning that I've taught over here to year sevens probably grade seven in the US and it's a very short scheme of learning on the Wars of the Roses aimed at 11 to 13 year olds where it just really runs them through the short, the short course of the Wars of the Roses but I am looking at seeing how I can put together a course for For adults,
0: that would be a great idea. People are always hungry for new information, especially about the tutors. And that's my next question. You are doing a series on your podcast on Tudor monarchs, correct?
1: Yes, yes, I am. Uh, I'm currently, and i I still to this day don't know why I committed myself to this, but I'm doing a English and British monarch series where I've committed to run through from William the First to Elizabeth the and you think about the English monarchy, you don't think there's that many monarchs, and then you get into it and you think, oh, there's a lot of monarchs. Um, so I got to the Tudor series. I'm currently halfway through, um, and I'm I'm absolutely loving looking at the Tudors. We've looked at Henry the Seventh already. We've looked at Henry the Eighth. I I've spoken to you, Deb, about Edward the Sixth, which I thought was a fantastic conversation. I learned so much from you. And up next we have Mary the First.
0: Oh, we'll have to share that one with the group because we have a lot of calls for Mary the First, and I I know when you had me, when you sent me the email saying I want you to talk about Edward the Sixth, I kind of freaked out because I really knew less about him than (laughs) any of the other monarchs. But now I I feel fairly confident after I studied for your podcast. So thank you for that.
1: That's okay, and thank you very much for coming on that episode. I think it was a fantastic chat about about Edward the Sixth. I think he's a he's a king who's oft ignored in English history. Um and I definitely wanted to shine a little bit of light on that man. But I've also had Peter Stifle, one of my good friends, on the podcast speak about some of his research on Mary. Um but I will be having another Mary episode again soon. So it's we're we're full on with kings and queens here and you know, it's I've learned so much from this series, and I learned so much from you when you came on to the podcast.
0: Um, well, thank you, and I look forward to what you have to offer with Mary the First. Again, we have a lot of calls for information about her, and people can't get enough of Elizabeth, as we're discovering from the Star Show becoming Elizabeth. So, I I believe she's always going to be a, a touchstone in Tudor history.
1: Yeah, um, I think a lot of the narrative around Mary and uh, Peter's doing a very good job of exposing it is changing. You know, we have this bloody Mary narrative, and I really like the way that it's going, portraying her in a more positive light. But but likewise, it's hard to look at English monarchical history and the Tudors without touching upon uh, Elizabeth. She's certainly a fan- fascinating character, and I'm looking forward to getting to stuck into her soon as well.
0: Absolutely. Now, how can we find you on social
1: media? Oh, so you can head to my website, which is www.historyofjackson.co.uk. On there, you can listen to all my podcasts, watch all my videos, read some of my work, look at my lesson plans that I've just put up as well. Uh, you can go to at HistoryWithJackson on Facebook and Instagram to look at my social media pages, and on Twitter, because of its annoying character limit for your usernames, I'm at HistoryWJackson. And then the History of Jackson podcast is available on all good podcast sites. Uh, Deb's been there on there as well. So there's there's a catalogue of episodes for you to go away and watch. And then on YouTube is History with Jackson.
0: Thank you for that. Now, my last question is, what do you do in your spare time? And do you have any?
1: (laughs) Good question, Deb. I often ask myself that question. (laughs) Um, Well, I make sure that I spend time with my girlfriend, Edith. So I try and spend time with her. Um, I really enjoy spending time with her, obviously, because she's my girlfriend. Um, I try and spend time <laughs> with my family. I'm I'm also a, a keen rugby player as well. So I like to play a bit of rugby. I just try to make sure I look after my own mental and physical health as well. I'm a very busy person, so I need to make sure that I'm I'm firing on all cylinders. You know, as you mentioned, I'm an educator a writer, podcaster. So I have a lot of stuff that I need to do and I need to make sure I'm in tip-top condition for. So yeah, looking after my mental health by spending time with girlfriend, friends and family, and looking after my physical health by making sure I work out and play rugby.
0: That's great. And I did want to point out that you have worked with brands such as HarperCollins and you've appeared on BBC Radio. So you have a very varied career history or career in history. So I, I find that so admirable.
1: Yeah, I I see this as, you know, the world's changing, the world economy is changing, and you've got to build a life for yourself and you've got to make yourself stand out. And and history of Jackson, I'd love to I'd love to be full time in history of Jackson and working on my education as well. And this is what I'm doing to try and to try and find my place in the world. Try and make something for myself in this world so yeah hopefully it all goes to plan yeah like you've said i've worked with some fantastic brands i've worked with some amazing historians i've learned so much and i've made some some great friends and great contacts on the way so all you can do and i'd say that to anyone all you can do is work hard uh, and try and make something for yourself grind grind your way into what you want to do and if you're passionate and you love it there's there's no limit really
0: that's so true, and that's what I found with podcasting. People I admire, such as yourself and your work ethic, I get to work with you. I get to talk to you and other historians that I would not have had that chance before. And I so appreciate you being my guest today.
1: No worries. Thank you very much, Deb, for having me on. I've, I certainly agree with you that the podcasting and the historian community is is very open. You know, I've, I've spoken to people who I... I have I have to admit, I freaked out a little bit when I've opened the email uh, because you never in a million years think that these people will respond to you, yet alone email you or email you back. So it's a great experience. I've worked with a lot of great people such as yourself, and I'm looking forward to seeing what's what's in the future.
0: Absolutely. And thank you again. And thanks for listening. Everyone have a good day. Thank you, Jackson. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Deb. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.